Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. I'm Kat Davis, and in each podcast, we'll be looking at a new title in language and linguistics and talking to its author. Today, I'm talking to Julie Sedeby, cognitive scientist and adjunct professor in linguistics and psychology at the University of Calgary. The book we'll be discussing is Sold on Language, How Advertisers Talk to You and What This Says About You. It's an entertaining and penetrating examination of advertising practices, and it reveals some of the ways in which advertisers and marketeers target their audience and ensure that it's their brand that consumers choose. It does this by applying discoveries from psychology and linguistics to the world of goods and services, and in doing so opens its readers' eyes to the carefully considered and considerably funded strategies involved in the business of selling. So welcome, Julie Sedeby. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we'll talk to the book shortly, but maybe we could start by um, uh, you telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to linguistics and psychology. Sure. Um, coming on linguistics was actually a bit of a surprise to me. I'd started off my university life as an English major. Uh, I'd always loved language and literature, and I thought that I would become a writer. Um, and it happened one year that I needed to take a course just to fill in my schedule. Uh, So I I took a linguistics course, not really knowing what that would be like. And I was immediately hooked from, I think, the first week of the course. Um, What I hadn't anticipated was that there was a a completely scientific way of approaching the study of language. Uh, I'd always enjoyed science before, but I had never really uh, resonated to the object of study of the scientific disciplines I'd been exposed to. So this was just a perfect alignment of my love of language and my Um, interest in pursuing things from a scientific perspective. Uh, So that was really the start for me. And from then on, I guess I've spent um, a good 20 years since working as a laboratory language scientist. Great, great. It's always surprising, actually, how how many people I meet that that fall into linguistics after, um, you know, hearing of it quite late. So, um, yeah, I think we're we're in good company. It's true. Uh, It was a fortuitous accident. Absolutely. Sure. Okay, so um, how did you and Greg Carlson, your co-author, come to write Sold on Language? Now, this book has a very, very long history. Um, I first met Greg when uh, he was one of my advisors in graduate school at the University of Rochester, where I was doing my PhD. So we had regular research meetings where we would talk about our research. Um, And often these meetings would kind of wind down with us just casually talking about ads that we had seen and pointing out to each other, do you see what they're doing here? Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of a mutual hobby of ours. And eventually these conversations got detailed enough that we thought that maybe we should really put together a course on the topic. So we developed a course that uh, was taught at the University of Rochester. And eventually I graduated, took a job at Brown University and continued teaching uh, a version of that course there. Uh, And uh, over the years, we kind of stayed in touch and decided at one point that we really should write up uh, our course material into a book. Uh, So that's kind of how it came about. I think there was a good uh, 12, 15 year gestation period for this book. 
Right. Okay. An interesting path. Um, okay. Turning to the book now, um, chapter one is called The Power of Choice. And you begin by establishing that we're inundated with information and, and options. Um, um, but then you, um, you soon mention the illusion of choice. So how can that be? Well, I think you, it's impossible to study any area of the cognitive sciences, I think, without becoming very deeply impressed with the fact that most of what happens in our minds is not something that we're consciously aware of and that we're often very, very bad at introspecting about the information might have caused us to think in a particular way or even behave in a particular way. Uh, and this is certainly true of language. Most of what we know about language goes on under the surface. And I think that's what makes it such a fascinating field to study. It's full of surprises. But in particular, I think when it comes to persuasive messages, um, we're, we live in an environment where we're faced with a tremendous number of choices to be made. And anytime there's a choice to be made, there's going to be someone who's interested in persuading us to make a particular kind of choice. Uh, so the preponderance of choice that we're exposed to naturally leads to a very, very high volume of persuasive messages. Um, the way that we typically deal with this is to try to tune it out to some extent. We don't devote our full attention to any one of these messages for the most part. And uh, as a result, um, those who are lobbying, lobbying those persuasive messages at us have to rely more and more on techniques that maybe work at a level that's not really addressing our conscious deliberation and, and thoughtful processes. So I think we're kind of caught in a little bit of a cycle where the, the more choice we have, the more persuasive messages we're exposed to, the more messages we're exposed to, the more we try to suppress them or tune them out, and the more that the originators of these messages uh, really have to tailor their messages to processes that might be a little bit less conscious than we're necessarily aware of. Sure. Okay. So are you saying that advertisers um, do this consciously? I mean, are they, are they in touch with, um, you know, experts in psychology and, and, and linguistics? Do they work with these people to, to, um, to target these subconscious processes? Yes, I think to some extent they do. Uh, and much much of the, uh, the techniques that are used, I think, have also evolved somewhat independently of the scientific study of linguistics through trial and error, uh, noting what seems to be particularly effective. But if you look at the business literature, it's full of um, advice as to how to get past your consumer's mental radar, uh, their defenses against persuasive messages, and so on. So even when it's not grounded in some of the scientific literature, there's been a lot of trial and error, I think, that has led to certain techniques that, uh, again, aren't necessarily uh, targeting our more deliberative thinking processes. Sure. Okay. So in the book, um, you lay out these uh, these techniques very clearly and exemplify them throughout. So do you think that um, as reader of, uh, readers of the book and as consumers of the products, that knowledge of these techniques can make us more resistant to, to them? Oh, yeah, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a quick answer for that. I suspect that that's really going to vary quite dramatically from instance to instance. Um, I'm not sure that we believe that this book is going to inoculate readers against persuasive messages, but what we're hoping it will do 
is emphasize to readers uh, the fact that many of our choices are not made fully consciously. Much of our information processing is going on below the surface. So maybe we do things to counterbalance for that. So for example, when faced with a choice that's really very important, uh, maybe we can make a deliberate effort to devote more of our conscious attention to a message, evaluating it a little bit more closely. Um, so the hope is that in those cases that will matter, armed with the knowledge of some of the ways that we can be pushed around by the information surrounding us, uh, that maybe we'll take a little bit more control over how we direct our attention. I think that's really the primary goal. Sure, sure. And and when you've been having conversations with um, consumers and you highlight some of these techniques, do you, do you find much resistance or disbelief that we can be pushed around in these ways? Yes, I think people really don't like to think of themselves as being influenced uh, by factors that they think are trivial or have nothing to do with their deeply held values and beliefs. Um, but there's overwhelming evidence that this happens to us all the time. Now, that's not to say that advertisers can control our minds and make us do things that uh, we otherwise would never do. I think a lot of uh, these unconscious influences are coming kind of at the edges. Um, they're maybe, you know, nudging us slightly in one direction over another. Uh, they're not going to make us buy a product that we absolutely would hate. But when faced between the choice of two products that seem roughly equal, um, it might make the difference in our choices or between two political candidates that uh, we might not otherwise have strong opinions about. Sure, sure. Okay, so in um, chapter two, The Unconscious Consumer, um, you discuss the power of the brand name. Um, and there are many trends in brand names, for example, novel coinages like Kodak or Bebo and real words like Amazon or Apple. Um, how might a marketing department benefit from a knowledge of psycholinguistics when christening their brand? Sure. Uh, well, one of the things that we know now uh, from psycholinguistics is that when people access a word, they're certainly not just pulling a word out of memory in isolation. That word comes connected to many, many other words and concepts that are related in meaning or even just in sound. Uh, so, uh, for instance, when we pull up a word um, uh, like cat, your name, um, we might uh, unconsciously also activate all kinds of words that share some sound features with that. So, obviously, the feline, animal, uh, maybe words like caterpillar uh, and so on. Uh, so. I think brand namers are now paying a lot of attention to some of these subtle kinds of associations uh, that, again, you know, maybe we're not consciously aware of, uh, but that can be experimentally demonstrated. Um, so just looking at the patterns of sounds, well, what are some of the uh, meanings of words that are similar in sound? I think can be very illuminating in terms of uh, finding out what kind of associations you might be pulling up by your particular brand name. Sure, sure. Now, another, so, sorry, go on. Another useful strategy uh, for brand namers, of course, is if they use an actual word of English, for instance, uh, that exists already as a concept, then they're importing all of the associations that come for free with that particular word. Uh, and potentially, 
they're even creating some kind of a paired cue between that word and the brand uh, name. So if you think of a brand name like Tide, for instance, um, there's some very intriguing evidence to suggest that when people are exposed to the word Tide in the context of talking about oceans, for instance, that it might actually prime or activate uh, the concept of the brand of laundry detergent. So there's potential for these kinds of subtle linkages to be made to strengthen, uh, in a sense, the memory trace of a brand name. Sure, sure. Um, I'm just thinking of a sort of practical implication of that as as um, more domain names get taken up online. Um, do you think we're, we're going to see branding going more in the direction of these novel coinages? Yeah, no, that's an interesting point is that uh, we're kind of routing out our natural lexicon. Mm. Uh, and I suspect that's a consequence. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, English has a great many words um, that are available and a great many ways of combining words together uh, into pairs or triplets. Um, so I'm not sure that we're really going to run out of linguistic material. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so we've talked um, quite a bit so far about, um, as you put it, this attentional arms race um, in the book and this, you know, this climate of information overload that, that we find ourselves in. Um, so in chapter three, you talk about um, focus in sentences or how um, there are attentional hotspots uh, where important information hits the reader over the head. Um, and, and you also talk about um, punning or, or double meanings, which um, just a quick look through a magazine will, will throw up many examples of these um, double meanings used in advertising. So the example, one of the examples in the book is a Volvo ad um, appealing to expectant mothers by asking, is something inside you telling you to buy a Volvo? Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, you know, is punning just a cheesy trick to raise a smile or... Um, or to, you know, to get a brand lodged in a memory, or is it something more? Well, I think it can be more. Sometimes it's used in just a cheesy way, um, as a way of creating some kind of incongruity or grabbing attention. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that language can be used to manipulate attention. Uh, ambiguity is wonderful for this purpose because it can play on a violation of expectations that I think is really at the source of many humorous effects. Um, so it can have the result of being funny, uh, which obviously is something that can capture attention, but it also might lower the resistance of consumers to a message if they perceive a message as being humorous. Um, but I think that when ambiguity or punning is used especially effectively, it's done in such a way that two alternative meanings uh, of the message become salient or apparent. Uh, one of the most clever uses of ambiguity I've heard recently is um, Sealy, the mattress company, apparently has launched a, a campaign um, where their tagline is, we support everything you do in bed, <laughs> which I think is enormously clever. Yeah. Um, and it works because of the two meanings of support and the fact that both meanings are intended to be computed and playing off of each other uh, in in a really interesting and kind of risque way. Mm, so yeah. to really be effective, I think ambiguity needs to do more than just be a pun or be a play on words. Um, it can activate two meanings together that become linked in the consumer's mind. So now 
when people hear that tagline from Seeley, they think of obviously the mechanisms of support in the mattress, but they link that with an idea of all kinds of fun things you can do in bed. Sure. Um, and that's sure. part of its effectiveness. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, so so advertisers can kind of cash in on on metaphorical uses of language like like the support example there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a bit of a balancing act because you have to make sure that both meanings are available. And we know that uh, in many cases of potential ambiguities, one meaning dominates the other and the other never really comes to to conscious awareness. I think these kinds of ambiguities trade on a, a, a technique where we're able to amplify both meanings equally. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so chapter four, uh, we know what you're thinking. Um, one of the sort of linguistic features that you talk about in this chapter uh, is presupposition, which um, is a way of packing information, um, which leads readers to accept something whilst they process the main message. Um, for example, um, I think the uh, couple of ads that you cite are, are bring back vibrancy, um, assuming, presupposing that vibrancy once existed, um, or this porridge meets your high expectations, and again, assuming that, that um, the consumer has high expectations. Um, so both of those are examples of, of flattering the consumer, as I see it. Um, I mean, aren't, aren't we smart enough to spot this flattery a mile off? Isn't it a bit of a turn-off? <laughs> well, I think presuppositions are interesting because... Um, I, I like to think of them as uh, what happens if you're trying, sort of the analog of uh, trying to sneak into a building that you have no business being in. Um, <laughs> and if you wanted to do this, you'd hardly march up to the front desk and present your fake ID. What you would do instead is act as if it was completely normal for you to be there. Um, and as if no one in their right mind would question your existence there. Presuppositions really work the same way linguistically. They're used as a device that suggests that we already know this to be true. Um, so they kind of slide past our radar, our identity checkers, I think, rather smoothly. Um, and in this case of flattery, I think they create the impression of a relationship or some sense of intimacy because we're presuming that there's something that's known about the consumer and their and their uh, particular characteristics. Um, they're the most, one of the most intriguing uh, cases of presupposition use that I've come across was in um, uh, Clinton's re-election campaign. Uh, there was a, a discussion uh, by one of his advisors that pointed out that when Clinton simply asserted all of the great things that he had done in his first term as president, such as creating hundreds of thousands new jobs, for instance, that people tended to either be disinterested or um, to not believe that he had actually accomplished these things, that there was a certain skepticism or resistance to that message. But when the same content was expressed as a presupposition, uh, the results seemed to change quite dramatically. So, for example, instead of saying, I created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, uh, the new commercials would say something like, the hundreds of thousands of new jobs that we've created won't be much use if we can't find educated people to fill them. Mm -hmm. So an interesting subtle shift now we're signaling that everybody knows and agrees on the fact that these jobs have been created. That's not up for controversy. That's not up for discussion. Um, and I think it's a very effective way 
of kind of sliding this past um, uh, the hearer or the reader. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess another way of, of sliding something past the reader um, is this um, a sort of belief that, that everybody does something or everybody knows something, um, that the majority of people think in a certain way. And you cite evidence to suggest that the people examine propositions less when they think that it's the majority view. And right. um, how, how do advertisers exploit that? Uh, well, I think there's potential for that to be exploited um, by putting some of your more controversial statements in the form of a presupposition um, that will likely raise uh, the probability that people will accept that as taken for granted, won't scrutinize it particularly closely. Uh, and I think when you look at actual advertisements, um, you'll often see some of the boldest claims about the product's features being coded as a presupposition as opposed to as a direct assertion, as if this were common knowledge that this product has a particular uh, desirable feature. Okay, okay. And um, yeah, just on that common knowledge, I guess that's uh, quantity of people knowing something or believing it. I'm just wondering about the particular identity of of people who know this or people that do this. I'm, I'm driving at um, the question of, of do celebrity endorsements work? Ah, uh, that's a good question. And uh, they often do. It will often depend on the circumstances. So one of the things that we discuss in the book is um, this difference that's been drawn in the psychology literature between central uh, thought processes versus peripheral thought processes. Um, and it has to do really with how much deliberate attention you're focusing on evaluating a particular message. Um, there are a number of situational characteristics that predictably cause people to focus more attention and more evaluative attention on a message um, at some times rather than others. Uh, peripheral thinking really uh, tends to cause people to rely on these kinds of superficial cues like uh, celebrity uh, endorsements or the attractiveness of the source or the impression that a particular source is credible uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to really evaluating the content of the message. So the results suggest that sometimes these uh, devices can be quite effective and that they're most effective just in those situations where we're kind of tuning out a lot of the content of the ads. And that's when we're especially susceptible uh, to be relying on some of these shallower types of cues. Right, right. So celebrity as a distraction tactic. Right. Or celebrity as a cue to be used in conjunction with distraction. So if we distract people um, with a high-paced, uh, very sharply, quickly edited uh, commercial, for instance, where there's lots of movement, lots of things going on, that's going to tilt people towards these peripheral, uh, more superficial kinds of thought processes. And that's when you'd expect to see those kinds of devices to be making a bigger impact. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, I come across many bewildering advertisements or, say, adverts with bewildering claims. Um, I'm thinking of uh, a lot of um, sort of cosmetic 
adverts with these pseudoscientific chemical compounds um, that, that sound very dubious to me. And, and um, I guess a related example that you cite is, is the new Ford being 700% quieter. I mean, once you examine these things, it just makes very little sense. Um, and I'm wondering about the legislation in advertising um, and how far the legislation can go in regulating these kinds of claims, which may be either misleading or just just very weird, like like the the Ford example. Right. Well, the the legislation in the U.S. certainly is very very clear about the fact that advertisers are responsible not just for what they actually say in a literal sense, but really the um, the message that is understood by the typical reasonable consumer. Um, So, for example, the the Ford case is a a classic that has been discussed quite a lot. Uh, The claim, the new Ford is 700% quieter. We're not told quieter than than what? And in the right context, it could actually be understood to mean that it's quieter than, say, a jet on takeoff, which obviously is not a very contentful claim to be making about uh, your automobile. Most people in the context that the ads would be uh, appearing in, would assume that it meant something like quieter than the previous model or quieter than competitors' models. Uh, The law is very clear that if a substantial proportion of consumers are likely to extract this message uh, from the ad, then the advertiser is responsible for that. Now, in practice, it can be quite a lot more difficult to prove or make the case that reasonable consumers are deriving certain implications um, as opposed to uh, an ad that directly states a claim outright. Um, Sometimes you have to go out and actually gather data to convince a court that, yes, in fact, many consumers would derive this particular kind of implication. But once you've made that case, uh, it's quite clear that the advertisers are legally responsible for those implied messages as well. Right. Okay. So even though the implicature is is cancelable, um, you know, we have to be practical about these things. And and are are consumers surveyed? Or I mean, who makes the judgment on the majority of people interpreting something in a certain way? Yes. Often uh, consumers are surveyed as to what they understand the meaning of uh, the message to be. um, And that can be uh, something that carries a lot of weight in court. I see. Okay. Um, so another technique that, that I'm noticing more and more since reading the book, actually, um, are ads that, um, that masquerade as something uh, as anything other than advertising. So um, it was Valentine's Day a couple of weeks ago, which isn't a major date in my calendar. But this year, Virgin Media decided to send me a card. So it had a red envelope and handwritten address and everything. Um, so much so that my husband, you know, walked into the kitchen and, and sort of said, oh, you know, what's this? And I had to say it's from Virgin Media. Um, I just find this really sneaky how companies downplay their persuasive intent um so how else does advertising hide behind what it's really trying to do and and what do you think about this way of marketing well i think um there's growing evidence that uh people receive messages quite differently depending on their perception of the intent and not just their conscious perception but even subtle less conscious perceptions um so i'm not sure that we discussed this particular study in the book i think i may have been Um, become aware of it more recently. Uh, But there's one study I've come across that looked at um, how people respond to 
slogans as opposed to brand names. And uh, it turns out that uh, people perceive slogans as somewhat more persuasive than just the name of a product. And that this seems to activate a certain resistance uh, to the message because of its perceived uh, persuasive intent. I think that there are all kinds of things that ads can do that will minimize um, the strength or awareness of the persuasive intent of the ad. Uh, it can uh, come from the kind of language that's being used. Uh, often it comes from creating some kind of a fictional scenario. So we embed a little fictional world within the ad. Uh, so now we're not being spoken to directly by the company and a representative of the company, but rather we're witnessing a little play being carried out uh, where characters within the play are interacting with each other and we infer some kind of a message uh, that comes out of that interaction. I think these kinds of devices can be extremely powerful in softening some of that resistance that we might naturally activate when uh, we become aware or even when uh, the persuasive nature of the message is heightened. Sure, <clears throat> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, um, so in Chapter 7, Divide and Conquer, um, you discuss personal advertising, so where companies can no longer get away with seeing their customers as one amorphous mass and they're marketing to smaller and smaller slices of the population. Um, what role does language play in creating this personalization? I think a massive role and one that's probably um, at this point in time somewhat underutilized by advertisers still. Um, because I think the potential for customization of language is enormous. So uh, one obvious starting point is regional dialect and accent. Um, and one of uh, the very fascinating things that's come out of recent studies of North American English, for instance, is that rather than seeing a convergence of regional accents and dialects, linguists are observing that they're pulling apart from each other, that the differences uh, between regional dialects are getting stronger rather than smaller, which strikes me as, as somewhat surprising in a sense that, you know, more than ever, we have mobility uh, where people move from one location to another for their jobs or for lifestyle. Uh, we have access through the media uh, to other regional dialects. You think this would kind of blend things into an in, indistinguishable slur of English, but it hasn't done that. And I think it hasn't done that because the role of dialect uh, plays um, an important part in establishing people's sense of identities. Mm -hmm. um, so given that accent and dialect is really tied up with people's notions of who they are and what kind of community they identify with, I think there's a very, very strong role um, for exploiting uh, these kinds of devices within advertising once you've identified a particular market and tweaking aspects of the language to target a particular market. Now, one of the reasons this may not be done as much as it could, I think, is because, of course, this is quite expensive, right? Rather than recording one message, now you have to record the same message in multiple different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but the potential, theoretically, I think, is there. Sure, sure. And I guess uh, it may also be due to um, 
I mean, this is conjecture, but the fact that um, advertising is, I think, increasingly visual only, you know, on websites, you know, you'll get these banner ads or pop-up ads or whatever, which often don't have sound, or if they do, uh, people will just turn that off. So I guess language needs to get in there in other ways. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it's certainly true that the proportion of visual elements to linguistic elements has grown over the last few decades. But in a sense, I think what that means for language is that uh, the language that's there has to be used very, very effectively. Um, And in a way, it increases the importance of choosing just the right language and just the right elements of language. Uh, So I'm not sure that the importance of language is ever going to go away. I think it's going to play a much more cooperative role with some of the visual elements. Sure, sure. Um, and still on this uh, sort of aligning to um, more uh, a more bespoke audience, um, it seems that maybe we've we've gone beyond the age of uh, this sort of gold blend aspirational type of advertising that I mean I remember from from the eighties. You know, it was all very slick and aspirational, or at least that's the way I remember it. Um, whereas now it seems that that's been replaced by um, ads which speak to us um, on a more uh, well, on a, on, a, on a level, on their perceived level of who we are. So you contrast in the book um, Estee Lauder and CoverGirl, uh, which are marketing to very different audiences and, and use language in, in very different ways. I don't know if you could just expand on that a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, I think uh, m- more and more we're seeing a kind of a way of thinking of br- about brands that's less about um, achieving a state that we'd like to arrive at um, and more and more as extensions of our personality or ways of expressing our identity. So in a way, brands are becoming a little bit like what regional dialects and accents are, right? As a a way of broadcasting your solidarity with a particular community. Mm -hmm. And uh, we often make inferences about a person's uh, character, their political beliefs even, Uh, their personality, their lifestyle choices based on, for instance, the type of car that they drive or maybe even the kind of computer that they use. Um, And I think that uh, advertisers play into uh, this tendency for consumers to use brands that way very, very strongly uh, so that there becomes a very, very tight linking between this notion of your identity and your sense of belonging to a community and the particular brand. So that means that the messages that go out now are much less about here's what your life can be like, here's what you could be like if only you would use our products, and rather, you know, we've made this product specially for people just like you, and then the campaign uh, becomes largely about defining what it means to be a person just like you. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, we've talked about many different techniques then that the advertisers use. So using presupposition, um, using metaphorical language, personalizing their ads, um, etc. And and we don't just see this in the corporate world, of course, we see this in politics too. Um, So I'm just wondering um, how advertising techniques are playing out in the US primaries at the moment. <laughs> well, uh, as you know, I live in Canada now, so I'm not as inundated with coverage of uh, the primaries as I would be if I were still living in the U.S. Mm. Um, but one of the the developments that I think has been coming out more and more, um, certainly over the last 10, 15 years in American political advertising, is the 
preponderance of negative advertising. Um, and I, I think there's often a reaction that many people have um, where they believe that negative advertising is not effective uh, because they respond emotionally to those ads as being ugly or unfair or um, just not really qu quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's uh, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that even when people think that they don't like negative ads, that it can continue to have an impact on their beliefs and attitudes towards political candidates. Um, for example, uh, one result uh, is that um, people tend to, I, I think, have a faster decay rate, if you will, for um, the kind of negative reaction or a disapproval of a negative ad. Uh, that disapproval decays at a faster rate than the remaining beliefs about the candidate that are being projected through the ad. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at people's responses to a negative ad, immediately after seeing the ad, they might not be persuaded by it. But if you look at their reactions two weeks later, uh, they've kind of forgiven some of those nasty aspects of the ad a little bit and have retained some of the negative impressions of the candidate, nevertheless. Interesting. So I, I think there's a, uh, that's one thing that we're seeing in the uh, political arena. I think that's being used very, very extensively is the uh, very, very frequent use of negative ads and denigrating and even, even making insinuations about candidates that are not true, uh, that even if one doesn't consciously accept them as true, might contaminate uh, the impression that you have of a can candidate. Sure. I mean, they're bound to make a, a deep impression in some way. So it's not surprising that, that something is retained in long term. Yeah. OK. Um, so we've talked about um, uh, maybe where advertising is going. You mentioned um, perhaps they will um, exploit accent and dialect features a little more in, in future. Do you have any more sort of predictions about about the future of advertising and marketing and its relationship to language? Well, I think uh, as some of the, um, the ways of delivering advertising become splintered among various channels, um, I think there's going to be more and more of a tendency to customize ads uh, and to devise cost-effective ways of doing that. Um, so I, I think that, that actually there's a tremendous opportunity for linguists to serve as consultants mm -hmm. <laughs> to advertising <laughs> agencies because... Uh, uh, linguists have a, a good sense of um, ways in which different communities might talk to each other uh, in ways in which uh, a message might be received uh, in a more friendly way by a consumer, depending on the, on the particular target audience. Um, so I, I suspect that there will be more and more intelligent uses of that kind of uh, audience segmentation and customization. Sure, sure. Okay. I mean, one, one recent trend I've seen, and it's, it's a new term to me, actually, subvertising. I don't know if you've come across this, um, where um, billboards or um, you know, ads in public places are 
are annotated or graffitied. So there's um, there's been a news story here in the UK recently. So one of our terrestrial TV channels, Channel 4, um, has a series about the gypsy and traveller community. And there's this programme called... Um, What's it called? Um, My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. And it's it's very stereotypical and it really uh, kind of exaggerates negative sides of the community. Anyway, they're launching a new series at the moment and the slogan is just bigger, fatter, gypsier. And someone has daubed underneath, um, quite close to where I live here in Leeds, um, more racist. So now it reads bigger, fatter, gypsier, more racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, <laughs> I was talking to a friend about this recently and and he was convinced that this is a strategy by the companies actually um, to to create eye-catching adverts and, you know, column inches and and space on the news. Mm. Um, What do you think about this subvertising move? Well, there's, I think, a long history of um, advertising campaigns using uh, controversial techniques or messages as a way of creating a buzz or even messages that are um, very hard to understand. Uh, So I'm thinking, for instance, of a campaign that ran uh, for Kettle One um, uh, that used ads that were really just basically a printing of a non sequitur on a white background, black text on a white background. So uh, an ad might read, for instance, um, this is an advertisement for Kettle One. We apologize. And that would be all that you would see on the page. These very um, uh, enigmatic kinds of ads. So I I think sometimes that's done to create a buzz. Um, I think there's also a growing sense among um, marketers that uh, consumers are more and more participating in defining brands themselves, uh, whether or not the company welcomes that or not. Uh, So the trick then becomes how to harness that desire to participate in creating a brand identity and be flexible enough in shifting the brand identity so that if it takes off in one direction, uh, you allow that to happen. It might not be the target audience that you've necessarily set out at the beginning, but that kind of evolves spontaneously over time. So that requires a certain responsiveness, I think, to uh, how the brand is taken up. So I I expect that we're we're going to see more and more of this kind of participatory strategies within branding and marketing. Sure, which is, of course, a a great way of getting people to engage with the the campaign. That's right. In a way, it's taking to a a very extreme position the practice that has been common now for a number of decades of having advertising messages that have to be reconstructed through implication and inference. Um, What that does is basically put out the ingredients for meaning to the consumer, but the consumer has to really construct the full meaning of the ad. That's been done for a long time now. And I think some of these kinds of interactive techniques of of branding are really pushing that to um, even a a new level. Uh, And I suspect that one of the cognitive impacts of that is really to dramatically lower the resistance to the advertising message. Because if you're partly responsible for reconstructing the meaning of the ad or even for creating the identity of a brand, then that line between the persuader and the persuadee becomes very, very blurred. Uh, And I think the, the degree of resistance is much lowered. So that seems to me to be a very natural uh, tool 
to be used, especially in an environment where we're just inundated with so many persuasive messages. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right, Julie, it's been really lovely chatting with you and and, uh, exploring some of the themes in the book. It's been really enlightening. Um, Before we go, I'd like to hear um, what you're working on now or any plans for the future. Sure. Uh, Well, at the moment, I'm kind of uh, in the thick of writing a textbook on the psychology of language, um, which is a fun exercise because you're really forced to synthesize a variety of different subdisciplines. Uh, But beyond that, I've kind of gone on the back burner, uh, a project that's taking me back to some of my earlier literary aspirations. And I'm uh, working on a a book that is really combining um, a series of poems interspersed with essays, uh, which really amount to explorations of various psycholinguistic phenomena. Uh, So I'm trying to use various poetic devices as a way to elicit or create certain psycholinguistic um, experiences, if you will, and then using essays that will illuminate the reader as to how some of those devices are being used. So that's a fun little project that is is really, for me, combining my uh, literary and scientific love of language on both sides. Wow, they sound absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to, uh, to see a little bit more of those. Well, thank you. All right. Uh, thanks ever so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Julie Stedevy, co-author of Sold on Language, How Advertisers Talk to You and What This Says About You. I'm Kat Davis, host of New Books in Language. Thanks for listening.